Hi everyone, I'm Utkarsh. I'm thrilled to welcome Mercedes Bent from Lightspeed Ventures. She's somebody who's had an incredibly interesting career and today we're going to dive deep into some of her career principles and how she's looking at education, future of work and other such parameters. So welcome Mercedes. It's such a pleasure to host you on Network Capital. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start from the beginning, Mercedes. Uh, what was uh, what was growing up like for you? How uh, what was an average dinner table conversation in the Bent household like? Well, I was actually came from a family of entrepreneurs, and so you know I didn't realize it was strange when I was a child, but we were always having you know conversations around the table about businesses, about startups, about ventures that we were working on. My dad was um, an inventor and he had started working on a bike company, you know, at some point or he was building this bike that rather than, you know, sitting back, you actually laid down face forward with your legs behind you. And so, you know, he was also an engineer and he was building tech, um, you know, applications as well. He built some video streaming software services and later on a radio frequency identification company. But, you know, I didn't quite realize that everyone's family wasn't always just talking about whether it was like Furby or a bike or, you know, something tech oriented that that wasn't going on. So yeah, I, I definitely got a lot of uh, entrepreneurial conversation around the dinner table. So you were exposed to technology early on, right? Like uh, you, you had a computer at home and you got interested in tech business early on. And I always say that uh, you can't be what you can't see. So in a way, you did have access to some relatable mentors that you looked up to. And I was wondering, what are your thoughts on relatable mentorship for driving your career forward? Totally. I mean, I think I was so privileged and lucky to grow up in the type of household that I did and to have parents who were so focused on not just our education, like they always said, at your education is the number one most important thing. We're going to do whatever we can to help you get as far as you can go. And yeah, I mean, in terms of relatable mentors, when people ask me, who's your top, you know, mentors, I always still say my parents, I mean, I go back to them with a lot of questions, I still go back to them for, you know, career advice all the time, should I do this, should I do that, probably has gone down, you know, over time, but it, <laughs> I definitely still do go back to them. And, you know, in terms of re relatable mentors, I mean, I think the other thing is too, that's someone who is very near and dear to your heart. That's somebody who's within your family. They're always going to have your best interest in mind. They're always going to look out for you. But I also think that I've used a lot of relatable mentors in life who are people who are just, you know, 18 months ahead of me, two years ahead of me. I think sometimes you can learn the most from people who are just one step ahead because they still remember what it's like to have been in your position. And so I think, you know, a lot of times um, it can be a mistake to think about only taking mentorship or only networking with super senior people. If you ignore what would be considered your peers from a learning perspective, I think you're going to miss out on just so much. I mean, I think about all sorts of folks like at my firm now, a woman, Nicole Quinn, is several years ahead of me in terms of when she joined Lightspeed. And so, of course, I'm looking up to her all the time and thinking about how can I learn from her? I'm not only going to say, oh, people who have been at, you know, Lightspeed, if they haven't been there for 15, 20 years, I can't learn from them. So I think that's super important to keep in mind. Yeah, and there's a bunch of research done on this as well, the, uh, the relatable mentors and how innovative a neighborhood is. And I've studied the works of Vinod Jordan and many other um, entrepreneurs who've done incredibly well, who often talk about how being able to see somebody who you look up to, that person can be right next to you in age group, but who you can see yourself realistically becoming has a disproportionate impact on student achievement, student learning, and so much more. So it seems like you know, early childhood was a place of a lot of inspiration for you, and uh, you went on to do uh, interesting things thereafter. But uh, talk about your college decision. Like you, you obviously went to a wonderful school. What did you want to become? Did you know what you um, wanted to accomplish in your career when you applied to college, and how did that evolve? 
I definitely did not know what I wanted to accomplish uh, when I went to college. I remember wanting, actually, my number one school I wanted to go to was Duke because I remember thinking that they were in North Carolina, which is where I was born. So I had an affinity from the hometown perspective. And also I remember thinking, oh, they're a great athletic school. And, you know, I want to have like a real college experience. And so I thought that that would be something there. Um, I ended up going to Harvard and it was an amazing decision. But when I went, I didn't know at all what I wanted to, to be long-term. I guess I thought business, but I didn't really know much about what that meant. Um, and I applied as a computer science major. I started out doing comp sci, very quickly realized I was awful at it, that I did not, <laughs> I mean, I had learned some programming in high school, but I was not good at it. And, you know, I switched over to economics. And from there, the conversation became more about, okay, well, what can you do with an economics degree? And, you know, at schools like Harvard, a lot of people are going into finance, they're going into consulting. And so I explored both of those routes. I really think I didn't have a great handle on how to do career discovery in college. Mm -hmm. I still went with what a lot of other people were going with in school. And so, you know, I didn't get the investment banking job. I didn't get the management consulting job, but I did get an asset management job that had some trading involved. And so I said, okay, I can do asset management. And so, you know, I, I started out working for the Federal Reserve or Central Bank when I was in college. I worked for them um, for a year. And then post-school, I was working uh, at, in asset management. So lo and behold, I found myself uh, doing asset allocation with my economics degree. Yeah, and I, on Network Capital, one of our most popular cohort-based fellowships is called I Don't Know What I Want to Do With My Life Fellowship. And the interesting thing is, of course, college uh, students join, but also sometimes very serious uh, people, 25, 35 join to figure out, you know, how do you make sense of this changing world all the time? So because career discovery, honestly, is a challenge. It's an unsolved problem. You've invested in a few companies that try and address uh, that space. And there is a little bit of a pressure on kids to figure out you know, what they want to do early on in school. Everyone does an investment banking internship at a good school and, uh, or, or, or tries to do that. And I feel that that slowly should change or is changing. Are you, are you seeing that in, in today's world, in the Gen Zs, the career choices that they're making today? Certainly. I mean, if you look at specifically like the school I went to and a lot of schools like that, one big change that you've seen over time is a much greater percentage of people going into startups in tech. That's definitely happened over the last decade or more. And then when you think about more Gen Z more broadly, um, you know, I, one of the most interesting stats is that almost 50% of Gen Zers are doing a job that is a freelancer or a gig or a creator economy style job. And you know that that's so not the case for millennials. It goes down the, the older you go. But it really thinks me, you know, makes me think when you when you speak of this majority freelancer economy that the US might become, the projections from the freelancers union say this might happen in 2027, you know, it's a reality that typically you see this stuff change at the youngest generations, the earliest, and then you know that is their reality. So it seems like we're seeing it in the data and there's just such a proliferation of services and options for them to do it. It's not just Uber, it's not just DoorDash, Instacart. They can now be a creator and post on Instagram and earn money from it. their endorsements. They can be on TikTok and doing it. So there's just a lot more options to be independent today. Yeah, my next book is titled The Passion Economy and the Side Hustle Revolution. And I've been, you know, I, I've been looking at the blogs of folks like you because you've written about this side hustle revolution in the passion economy space. Uh, was that at all a choice when you were graduating for college, from college? Did you, when did you start thinking about how, oh, I might become a creator or might become an entrepreneur or an operator? Uh, and how did you venture into that side? You know, I don't. I didn't have Instagram in college. I don't think they were around yet when I was in college. So, you know, when you think about a lot of the creator economy jobs today, they require at a minimum a mobile phone. And on top of that, they require, a lot of them also require a popular social platform. So, you know, mobile phones 
came out when I was in college. I feel very old um, saying that, but they, they came out then. I didn't have a smartphone until I think after college. And so, you know, some of the basic conditions weren't necessarily there, but I do think that we are seeing so many more platforms now, you know, that come out and it's almost now gotten to the level where you need to think about where, where companies are thinking about creators have a choice of which platform to be on. It's not like mm-hmm. you can just if that it's just Instagram anymore. And so companies now need to compete a lot more on what services and what bundles are they offering to their creators. And even how are they monetizing their not not monetizing, helping their creators monetizing, and how are they giving wealth also to the creators? How are they helping them win with the platform that made them? you know, the company successful. And so I'm seeing a lot more competition amongst platforms now for for creators. And, you know, there's also the traditional jobs as well. They're probably feeling the competition for talent the most, but it's certainly, you know, there's there's way, way, way more options and the, the competition is much more fierce. Yeah. You know, you tweeted something or you shared something really interesting just moments before uh, this particular masterclass, which was work is becoming like a Ponzi scheme. I would love for you to explain that along with how do you see uh, the fashion economy or the creator economy? What is this and how is this a Ponzi scheme, if at all, quote unquote? So I, somebody else wrote the article. I did not write the article, but Jor, uh, Poleg had an article about, um, you know, the Ponzi, the Ponsky scheme of careers, which what he was referring to was really that there, that everyone is now selling, that you are in the future going to have an ability to sell someone to someone else. And so you're just building, you know, continuous. And what he was referring to was this idea of creator coins that have become very popular. If you look at stuff like BitClout, you know, there's an ability now to create because of, you know, the crypto world and where Bitcoin has gone, there's now interest in these alternative assets. And people are now saying, hey, I'm going to create a new token. It's going to be based off of me. If you think the value of me is going up, you can buy it. And so my market cap as a person should rise. And, you know, the people have been trying to figure out the future of income. Well, they're always trying to figure out the future of income, but it's been gone through a couple of iterations. I mean, maybe three years ago, ISAs were all the rage, income share agreement, right. which was another version of how do you sell yourself and say, you know, I think my future self is worth a lot more. So rather than get a loan, I'm going to give up a percentage of my future earnings. And those were, you know, a contract that were popularized through the coding boot camps. I worked at one that briefly did ISAs um, back when I was working there. I think they're doing ISAs. Is that GA? Are you talking about GA right now? Exactly. I was at General Assembly for four and a half years. And so, you know, there's a lot more creative ideas of the future of income. It's not just ISAs. It's not just creator coins. There's another company um, called Pando Pooling that is working on career pooling, which they're mostly working with athletes today. But you think about, okay, in a, in a sector or a group of people, maybe such as founders, where there's probably a really high failure rate, but mm-hmm. the potential outcome of someone who makes it is extremely large, is this idea of them of a group of people agreeing to kind of share the future resources of whoever makes it out, so to speak. And so they enable people to set up those type of agreements. And then, you know, there's also, um, you know, gamified self, gamified life type of companies. There's companies where you can sell your time, you can sell your, your decisions about your life. There's a company called Nunu, which people, you know, creators can say, hey, you can tell me what to eat. You can tell me where, you know, what to to buy a dog, where to go, what to wear, and they are selling their decisions to other people. And so I call that kind of category gamified life. There's all these amazing new ways to earn money that are all just renting out your time. But more interestingly, they're not all just renting anymore. A lot of them are offering investment in yourself as well. Yeah, as somebody who allocates capital managed assets before, um, are you super bullish about it uh, overall? Or do you think that there has there will be a phase of adjustment and figuring out how this might work at scale? I think there, you know, any new type of income stream that is going to reach 
a large viability, it, it's going to take time. It's typically not something that happens overnight. You know, the gig economy uh, industry was is still going through many different trials and tribulations on in terms of different state by state regulations and different ways that we look at the worker contract. And that industry has been around in this modern version of it, as, you know, as it relates to mobile phones and those type of things for, for a decade. And so I do think it's typically a slow introduction. We have to think about regulation and regulation is really good. I mean, it, it, it asks the question of how do we protect consumers and how do we make sure they're not, you know, a lot of the worker protections that have been earned over decades and centuries are not, you know, taken away by a new form of income because it could be, you know, dangerous for, for people and their livelihoods. So I would say, you know, I am optimistic that we'll have many more different types of options of income streams, but I think that each one of them is going to need to go through a period of, you know, the, the, what do they call that, you know, um, the hype period and then the trough of disillusionment, which disillusionment, right. which is when you've caught on, now you're going to get regulated and then kind of stabilizing back out to kind of a, you know, a standard option. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of your essays that I enjoyed the most were on how education is evolving in terms of learning, in terms of business model, and there were some mind-blowing graphs. Could you, uh, you know, having gone to Harvard and Stanford studying both business and um, education, how, how are you seeing the future of education evolve in terms of business models? Let's start with unbundling of education. You've written about it, so I won't ask you to repeat all of it, but at a very high level, what are you observing today and how has the pandemic sort of accelerated, if at all, the unbundling of education? Sure, yeah. I mean, the unbundling of education is happening at a couple of different levels. If you think about it at the university or the higher education level where it's most often referred to, because universities are one of the most expensive and high inflation products that exist in the whole country. I mean, the out inflation of, of tuition has outpaced every other single consumer product for the last, I think it's 50 years, something like that. It's been an extremely long time. And you know, the first year that we ever really saw a break in that rapid tuition inflation was this past year during the pandemic. Every other year, it's grown by three to eight percent, and this year it, it it virtually halted because for the first time, people were really you know bringing into question what is the value of university when it's all online, and I don't have the campus experience, and I don't have the friendships, and the place to mature, and the place to get away from my parents, and to explore myself, and all these new things. You realize like, oh, was was it about the education? You know, this whole time in terms of. Um, you know, and I'm talking about the traditional college experience. The funny thing is actually in the U.S., the majority of higher education students now go to what would be considered non-traditional schooling, that schooling that is beyond the 18 to 22 year old range, and that extends into part-time online remote distance learning. And so I think, you know, and those are lower priced options. So I think when we talk about the unbundling of higher education in the university, there's already a large segment of the market that has figured out there's another way to do education that's more economical. And so it's asking the question of why do we put necessarily on a pedestal all of the you know, more traditional education forms that once the pandemic hit, they weren't nearly as attractive. It was things like 20% of you know, some schools had they saw, they saw wait, people waitlisting until a future year, they didn't even wanna go. And we also saw a drop in people enrolling in, you know, uh, in higher education, which is especially odd because normally in recession years, there is a, you know, the idea is that there will be a, um, that, that higher education is education proof, is, is recession proof, but that didn't happen this year. And just like, you know, on, uh, staying on this topic of unbundling uh, and how things are going. So I think student expectation changed big time. People started expecting different things from the college and they realized that perhaps college had become a little more of a signaling than anything else. Do you, do you foresee um, this remaining the trend or will college education or business school education bounce back to the way it was? We have seen the growth of 
new cohort-based platforms, one of which is, you know, network capital, which is emerging. And we are seeing that uh, community is something that people pay a, a huge premium for, the ability to really form meaningful connections. And people are very happy to go to um, a place where they find community, go to another platform where they learn, and ideally a platform where they can do both, which is what traditional college was supposed to be, school was supposed to be. Um, how are companies responding to this uh, challenge of providing community and learning and fun together, like the bundled college experience on the cloud? Yeah, I mean, well, we're seeing a lot of disaggregated services where people are providing different you know, pieces of it. I think in many ways, we're seeing on the consumer side of things, people getting a lot of community out of things that are not, you know, college experiences at all in terms of getting getting community out of social media or out of gaming companies or out of experience economy companies. On the education side, I see people doing, I mean, it's kind of funny that cohort-based learning, like that term is more popular now because I mean, in school, all of school that we go to is really cohort-based learning. But what cohort-based learning does what really well is it does have a greater emphasis and focus on community. And so maybe that is connected to the fact that the higher education system, you know, which has provided community for a lot of people, you know, graduate students and, and undergraduate students, maybe it is going to take up some mantle. I, I think that the degree in the US has been extremely, extremely sticky. And, you know, the four-year college degree. And I don't think the product is going to die overnight. I think the U.S. also has a you know large immigrant percentage population, and continually that new immigrant inflow also tends to value the four-year degree very heavily. And so I do think it'll be for some of those reasons. And one more reason, I mean, the U.S. doesn't have a you know uh, we have obviously the social stratification in the U.S. But only one of the biggest ways to jump in, in social mobility in the country is based on what school you go to. You know, we don't have lords and ladies. We don't have prince and princesses. And so when you want to rise in the social ranks, it, actually one of the few ways to guarantee do it is through college. And so I think it's, you know, I do think there's long-term durability of these, of these degrees. I think they're one of the only luxury brands that has stood the test of the entire country's life, you know, since literally 400 years ago. And so while I am super bullish on people adding more educational options and consuming more education overall, especially because higher education never got good at lifelong learning, I yeah. don't know that the, four, that the college degree is going to go away. Yeah, I read uh, that 26 to 35 year olds are the ones who are spending so much on online learning. When we look at our monthly paying subscribers on our platform, uh, 26 to 35 year olds are disproportionately represented. So what happens at, the, at this age group and what are 26 to 35 year olds realizing uh, in terms of advancing their careers? Um, is that a space where you'll see, say, the Harvards and the Stanfords and the Oxfords of the world try and create a product or will you see uh, more entrepreneurs trying to um, build new you know cohort based programs or what have you or will it be a bit of both and may the best person win yeah you know i think i mean so some of the universities do have products obviously there's graduate school education there's executive education and then there's continuing education continuing education doesn't necessarily hasn't you know responded as quickly to the market need as, as I think the private companies have. There have been some private company partnerships with continuing education companies like Trilogy partnered with continuing education arms to launch a coding bootcamp and that was very successful. But I do think that private companies are probably gonna have an edge because they can always move faster than the university system. And because continuing education is not necessarily viewed in a prestigious manner and so you know, why get the university name attached to it if it's just a reskilling or upskilling course is kind of how I think people view it. And you can build stronger brands around specific 
subject matters like data science or growth marketing or sales than you can at a university whose whole definition is to be a horizontal brand versus a you know very specific vertical brand. So I do think that private companies will will have an edge there. Uh, and you've you've actually worked at GA and then also at an ed tech company trying to um, you know bring about new kinds of technologies. Um, do you do you what did you observe then? What did you learn more about, say, student attitudes on one hand and product development on the other? Um, what were your insights as a young professional trying to understand this big, confusing space of education, both in the ed tech company uh, after GA and at GA? Yeah, I mean, I think General Assembly, there was always a goal and a hope that in the beginning that we would change the entire higher education system. But what we found is similar to what you guys have found, which is that the kind of target audience was a, you know, an older person for us, it was around 25 or even 28 to 33. And at General Assembly, it was also often a college educated person. It was something like 50% plus of people, sometimes as high as 70%, depending on the class, had a college degree. And so when you think about that, you know, it's it's not necessarily the folks who didn't go to, to college. And I think that is something that really needs to be solved in the country is we have, you know, if you look at all adults, a third of adults have graduated from college, a third of adults went to college, but didn't graduate, and a third of adults never went to college. And in many ways, I think that a lot of these ed tech solutions should be doing a much better job serving the third of adults who went to college but didn't graduate because in many ways they're the ones that need it the most. They have debt on average $17,000 from having gone to college but they don't have a degree and they don't want jobs that only require a high school degree but and they need a more affordable option given they already have this debt and they need a quick path to that new income. So that is the population that I think could and should be served the most but you know a lot of times we, we don't see that because a lot of the you know, um, places that these companies, the reskilling, the upskilling and training companies have come from and the jobs they target are very, you know, technical jobs in terms of a lot of their first wave was software engineering and user experience design and data science. I do think that, you know, we're investors in a company called FlockJ at Lightspeed and they're doing sales training. And I think that's an amazing, you know, subject matter because it's very accessible for a lot of different types of people. And so one of the things I kind of realized is that if you want to have the most change, if you want to drive the most innovation in the industry, you really have to get creative about who is your audience and make sure you're not just serving an overserved portion of the market. Yeah. And you've also led, uh, I believe, an investment in a career discovery company that forms an interesting a sort of match between you know employers and those seeking employment. So this unbundling is happening also in the career discovery space. Do you see this industry becoming um, or evolving in a certain way? Because clearly finding top talent or right talent for the right job is hard, it's expensive, and there isn't really a solution for it. So how are you seeing this evolve? And I would love for you to answer this question, keeping inclusion and diversity in mind, because that's something that I, I would love to see more companies device solutions, employability related that keep these two pillars at the center of their uh, solution. Completely, yeah. I mean, Forage is a company that, that I invested in. I invested in the Series A last year that is doing career discovery. And what they're doing is so interesting because in some ways they're really creating a whole new category of a company. What they do is they work with employers to create courses about what it's like to work at that employer. And so the employers pay them on, you know, like an annual contract and to the consumer side, to the candidates, it's all free. They get tons of, you know, courses that say, this is exactly what JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Bain or Deloitte or, you know, whoever it is, this is what they want you to learn. And it's much more tailored and specific to that company than where, when I worked at General Assembly previously, we would teach, you know, say software engineering or digital marketing but we taught it in a very horizontal manner. And then when students had to go prepare for their interviews, it was like, 
oh, actually that part's not relevant for this company. This part's not relevant. This is how they think about it here. And so it was like a whole nother set of courses. And so forage is really that, that, that finishing line. And from the employer's perspective, you know, the talent, the talent market is getting more and more competitive. They don't want to just keep, you know, finding people from universities and target, you know, schools to your point, they want to have greater diversity. They want to have greater inclusion. So what better way to do that than by opening up, you know, their, their insights to the, to the market about how they do what they do and giving court people, you know, that training, that skills before they joined. So, you know, when I think about what some of the biggest innovations in, you know, um, in career mobility now, in career mobility, it's not reskilling, it's not upskilling, it's pre-skilling. It's this, you know, idea that that Forage has really, you know, created a new category around of training before you hire, and that being a way to also even the playing field. Because I remember I used to sit and say, like, you know what, if someone just told me what investment banking was, I'm sure I could figure it out. Like I'm a smart person. And, you know, when I went through those interviews, like we were talking about in the beginning, um, you know, at college, I just didn't, I told you what my, my parents had done. I had no idea what investment banking was. Like it was so foreign to me. And, and I, and, you know, I think it was just too big of a learning barrier. There was no one to teach me how to do it. And so I really love what Forge is doing in terms of pre-skilling evening that playing field of access to information and then you can just see how people perform yeah i i love your blog where you talk about the stock and the bond and how people should know the difference and honestly it's really it's true when you're starting out there's information being thrown at you from all sides um and it's really challenging figuring out what to do with your life and how do you how do you navigate this entire system a mercedes i you know as somebody who's followed your work, read your uh, writings, I noticed that you gave a talk at the GSP about identity and inclusion. Tell me a bit about the message of that talk, how you prepared for it, and why does that matter to you? Oh, wow. Well, thanks for uh, watching my, my videos. Yeah, you know, I gave that talk a couple of years ago, and to me, it was really something to, you know, thinking through. There's, I think our identities are all a really big piece of us. A color, our lens of how we see the world is colored through the, the perspective of our identity, whether we like it or not, in terms of who you're around and who your community is. And so, you know, I always had wanted to understand more about, you know, I'm a, a Black person or African American, and the history of Black people in America has been one that's been obviously I think almost everyone knows about <laughs> what's happened over the last one, couple of centuries and so thinking through you know we we had ancestors in Africa we had people that you know we used to be connected to and what my speech was really about was about this idea and there's a lot of research that shows the greater awareness you have of your identity and your ancestry and the history the more likely you are to actually have higher confidence, higher performance in academics and all of these other kind of psychological benefits around happiness. And so, you know, I was really personally just curious, like what, what was my connection to the African diaspora and how are we all the same people? And if you can figure that out about one community as diverse as the African diaspora, which is people in Brazil and people in Nigeria and people in Detroit, you know, then, and people in uh, Jamaica and people in London, then you can really understand, okay, you can connect with anybody in the world. And so it was one of the unique, um, you know, insights for me around that, that process. And yeah, it was great to be able to codify it and, and share that with the world. Now, it came through really powerfully uh, on one of our inclusion subgroups. We shared it and the response that we got from our community there was very encouraging. Uh, we also shared it in our Network Capital Africa group, and a lot of folks really resonated with, uh, with what you had to say. And it's not a very long talk. I believe it's eight and a half, nine minutes, and uh, the message came through quite well. So one of our uh, members, uh, she's a consultant at Dalberg. She sent this question based out of Africa. Um, was that now doing what you do, are you seeing the talent opportunity gap uh, getting closer? Or are we, what needs to be done? How are you as a professional, as an investor, trying to bridge this talent opportunity gap that very clearly exists in many parts of the world, including the US? 
It's a great question. I mean, the optimist in me says, yes, I think I see a lot of signs of it closing, but I also see a lot of signs of it widening. I'd say, you know, some of the signs of it closing are things are a lot around globalization. When you think about people in really different parts of the world, opposite time zones are now because of remote work and because of technology, able to work together and because of also skills and learning. And, you know, and in many ways, I think that's a good thing. Um, we see more options for people to learn from not just traditional higher education institutions, but that access has been distributed through really large MOOC platforms. I'm a little less concerned that the MOOCs, you know, people didn't complete the courses um, because I don't necessarily think that was ever going to be the point of the platform. But hey, now that information has been disseminated and it's out there. And so we're almost to this point where we need to have make sense of all of the information around us. We need more curation, which I think like what you guys are doing at Network Capital with the cohort-based learning is another way to do that. You know, on the other hand, in terms of signs that maybe we're getting farther apart, the income gap in the US is widening. We have greater and greater income inequality. And so it's harder and harder to have a sustainable life or achieve the American dream on you know, the lowest salary rung in terms of if you're a minimum wage worker, if you're working some of the gig economy jobs, you can't really just do 40 hours of work a week and make it, and especially not in the cities where people right. are doing these jobs with how expensive the cost of living is. So there's, there's different signs both directions, but I'm always an eternal optimist. So I'm hoping we're, we're getting in a better place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're also somebody who's acutely aware of uh, the school space. You've invested in a couple of companies. Do you think something can be done in the way kids learn and the way kids go about this education and just overall the way we think about um, primary education learning, where diversity, inclusion, and building the fundamental blocks of your developing your overall worldview. Can something be done? Is something being done? What would you like to see? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, million dollar question of like, what would I love to see in primary or K-12 education? I would love to eventually one day get us to a world of personalized learning where every child is served content exactly that they want, that is interest bearing, that it you know drives their motivation and interest, that drives their love of learning. And also that is the right amount of challenge and the right amount of you know, leap for them to progress forward and that it isn't, you know, necessarily about, you know, teaching to a test, but instead about drawing and extending that motivation and interest from, you know, their early years onward. I think one of the biggest travesties we have in K-12 primary education in the U.S. is that there's this, you know, thing called the engagement cliff where people or children from you know, kindergarten to fourth grade would generally say they like school, they're pretty interested. And then starting in fourth grade until you know, the beginning of high school, ninth grade, it just, it falls off a cliff, how much students are engaged in their learning. It goes from high seventies down to twenties, thirties. And so what is it about what we start doing in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade that makes people fall out of love with school? And I have some ideas on it, but I think that the greater consciousness of children, children are not people that just need to be like, you know, wrote, taught at and like say, memorize, memorize, memorize. They start to develop this consciousness as they go into their, you know, preteen years of they have a greater awareness of the world. They have an understanding of, oh, mom goes out to do a job and, you know, oh, this, you know, singer that I'm interested in seems to have a cool career. I want to do that. And then what they see in school is not matching up to that. And so I think one of the big you know, stylistic changes I would love to see in primary education is actually a greater emphasis on career and project-based learning, even in K-12. I don't think it's weird for us to do that. And I definitely don't think we need to be waiting till college to do it, or even waiting until junior year of high school. So there's some companies like, there's a company called Mighty that is trying to make every child a CEO and, you know, help them run their own business as a way to learn things. And I just think that options like this are so, so, so important. So if I could wave my magic wand, would be personalized learning combined with kind of a more, an option to have a more career-based education or, you know, project-based formation to their education in primary school. 
you think homeschooling is going to become uh, more widespread in the years to come? Definitely. It already has. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic back in April of last year, I wrote an article and I said, you know, I think I think homeschooling is going to double. I think it's going to be much bigger. And that definitely proved true. I mean, the homeschooling did double over the last year. And the, it was because in many ways, parents were realizing that this black box of education that, you know, you used to send your kid to school and not worry about what they were going to do. It was daycare. And when, when they got home and they realized, oh, wow, this is what they're learning. This is how much free time they have in the day. This is, there's not enough content, you know, then people really want to start investing more. And so we are, we saw such a growth in not only homeschooling options, micro schooling options, learning pods. And I think people are realizing like, Hey, that might just be better for for my child. And actually, interestingly enough, you see some of these, actually you see a much higher rate of um, women of color being ones that are now wanting to homeschool in terms of people, children who are in K-12, children and teens, mostly teenagers. But I just think it's really interesting when you realize that there's communities that just find this to be a better learning option. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on why that is the case? Women in color uh, wanting more of it and what might be uh, the solutions they are working towards? I know this is this still needs to be explored. But I was wondering if there is some initial thesis that you have. Yeah, you know, I've read some articles that show, um, you know, that there is a higher percentage of Black women teenagers that are staying home um, and homeschooling. And you know, there's a lot of reasons. I don't know the full reasons, but I think it, some of it has to do with um, you know feeling like they can control their schedule from home. Mm -hmm. Some of it, do, it has to do with not feeling like teachers necessarily represented or have their best interest at school. And some of it has to go do with the social anxiety of being at school. So I'm not entirely sure, but I certainly saw those articles and wondered the same thing as you. Yeah, this definitely needs to be teased out. And maybe this homeschooling, uh, I see that becoming slightly more of a trend in the UK, slightly more of a trend in India. So maybe we'll see more of it and a lot of innovation there, uh, uh, thereabouts. But what I wonder a lot is that what is the purpose of education and how does uh, passion economy and the creator economy come into, uh, come into form? Like 15-year-olds are now starting micro-venture capital funds, are becoming TikTok stars, doing all sorts of things. And they're also supposed to learn, you know, basic calculus. So I wonder, like, how, how all of this fits into the purpose of education and the way the economy is going and how this dance might pan out. Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question. How many of us actually use the math that we learned in high school. I mean, I took pre-calculus, I took, I guess, calculus, I took geometry or maybe trigonometry, something like that. I couldn't tell you how to do any of those things today. Now, are the concepts generally useful? Yes, I think it's good that I know something about the concepts generally, but most people don't need it day to day. And so really, you know, I think this, other thing and learning that there's always this question of, you know, just in time learning versus being taught many things ahead of time before you needed them. And that's a big question that the education system is constantly grappling with. What is the necessary foundational layer of knowledge that every person needs to be a part of society versus what information can they learn later on in life and pick it up as they go? And, you know, I would argue maybe we don't need all of that as the foundational layer. Um, definitely not all of high school felt like a necessary foundational layer. And given that there is a way to incorporate those concepts through teaching career focused things, you know, maybe someone would be really interested in learning algebra if right. they understood that, you know, they were taking a creator economy class and they wanted to understand the velocity of growth of their follower accounts. Oh, wait, you need algebra to understand that. And so you can really wrap in concepts in a thematic way that I don't think we've done a great job at doing. 
I think uh, I heard Robert Refkin, I think the CEO of Compass, was talking about essentially what you were uh, speaking about, the relevance problem. Everyone, some people could be super interested in geometry or calculus, but everybody does not need to be interested in everything. And I think one challenge that we're grappling with in the education uh, space in school and college is that students are supposed to master a wide array of subjects without understanding the relevance of it. So I think maybe some ed tech companies will try and, or maybe schools will try and solve the relevance issue, which hasn't been done so far. So career discovery, uh, perhaps at a younger age, who knows? But it'll be, uh, I would be interested to see if you've seen the pandemic transform some of the student aspirations, what are you hearing from your ed tech companies? Um, are you seeing some big changes coming about in the way uh, ed tech companies are going about their curriculum and so forth? Yeah, and I think I mean, your question around the, you know, the relevance, um, there is, you know, the concept of pedagogy, which is the learning methods you use and the approach to designing learning methods for children, but then there's also adult pedagogy, which is a whole different name. And, you know, many people don't recognize that one of the greatest differences between the two is that adults need to understand the relevance for everything they're learning. They can't just be told, learn it. And so I also think that's something where high school messes up on. People become, are thinking in an adult mindset much earlier than 18. And so, yeah, I mean, to your question in terms of what are we seeing from the pandemic and what are our companies you know, doing now, are they changing anything? I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of our companies, uh, OutSchool in particular, it's a K-12 live online marketplace for, for kids that mostly is focused at, you know, grades five to eight, although they teach many other ages. Um, they have just really focused on this love of learning, this idea of driving motivation and interest and creating classes that are, are much more relevant and much more topical for kids. They have classes like learn history with Taylor Swift or learn math through Roblox or Minecraft. And that just makes it so much more relevant and interesting for people. And so there's other companies like this, like Flocabulary will teach history and uh, you know through rap. And so I think there's a lot of companies where out there that are trying to make content more relevant and interesting. And in some ways, this is great, better for teachers too, because it helps them leash their creativity. So OutSchool saw just such a surge over the pandemic. I mean, just the hugest growth ever because people really were seeking out this content. If I'm gonna sit at home and if I'm gonna learn remote, it has to be interesting. And teachers also wanted to spend that their time that way. So yes, we are definitely seeing a change from the pandemic. Yeah, and then just the last section of this masterclass, I just wanna talk about your productivity, your personal schedule, and you and the creator economy. So are we gonna see like established venture capitalists like you perhaps launch their tokens, perhaps monetize, uh, you know, do uh, have a portfolio of careers? Have you dabbled in that space? You're a prolific writer. You get, uh, you know, um, is something coming along for you on those lines? Is a part of you trying to do something else? I mean, it's a great question. I think that to be a good venture capitalist, you need to constantly be diving into whatever is the newest trend, especially consumer VC. You need to understand how consumers are thinking and feeling and moving. And you can't just study that from an ivory tower. You have to be in the thick of things. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think gaming is the new social. So I pay, play a lot of games in my free time and oh great, that, that's work. You know, I think about uh, when I was getting interested in crypto, I'm like, I'm not gonna just look at crypto, I'm gonna buy crypto and I'm actually gonna go in and, and be and be a you know owner. And so the same thing will happen, you know, when these other things take off. I think of, um, you know, I think of, I am a writer, I have my blog, I have, you know, people that thankfully like you have read some of them. And so, you know, I think about all of these things too. Should I use Substack? Should I use Patreon? Should I use OnlyFans? Like maybe not yes to all of them, but I considered them all because you do have to think about constantly what are new distribution methods? What are new, you know, areas? For me, it's a little bit less about monetization, but I think it's really about like becoming a consumer of these and trying them out. In a way, what has to, even a venture capitalist needs to have 
our anthropologist hat on, right? You have to sort of dive in, study the tribe that you're looking to invest in and see how it goes. Um, overall, the pandemic, like uh, your personal schedule, anything that you've changed your mind on or rethought about, any predictions that uh, turned out to be exactly how you thought, any turned out to be you know, exactly opposite of what we thought. We love rethinking on network capital and we love to ask interesting people what they've changed their mind on. That is a great one. And, you know, I actually have a blog post I've written but haven't yet published about <laughs> what I got right and what I got wrong in terms of what I thought would happen in ed tech during the pandemic. And so one of the ones I mentioned I got right was, you know, homeschooling will double. Um, I think another one of the ones I, I got right, I mean, some of these were already happening as I was writing it was in terms of parents being much more involved in their, you know, child's education. Um, and, you know, some of the ones that maybe I didn't get right are things like, um, you know, I was seeing at the time a lot more advertising solutions in schools and thinking through, you know, now that there's been a decimation of a lot of the in-person stores and people are spending more time online, maybe there'll be more advertising companies there. Of course, there's like COPA and different regulations that make it so you can't do that, but I thought they would target the parents more. And I haven't seen as much of, you know, uh, companies using parent-focused education to, to do advertising as I would have thought. Um, another thing I didn't see as much of is you know, childcare was clearly a massive problem. And I said, there will be really big calls for childcare reform. And we didn't see nearly as much of it as I thought. Like, I think it was kind of a huge topic of conversation. People were moving in with their parents and their grandchildren in order to have a family structure that would allow them to keep working. But, you know, some a founder said to me, childcare is always kind of a second tier issue in the politics sphere of America. And so I thought we would just have much further progress on that topic than we do today. It's still kind of the same as it was a year ago. Um, so some things like that, I wouldn't say necessarily changed my thinking. I still think that they're important and could happen in the future, but I think that they definitely didn't um, come true. I'll try and think of one that maybe I changed my thinking on. I'll try and think about that. <laughs> and lastly, um, you know, as, uh, as an operator, as an investor, uh, as a writer, um, what is your one message to, you know, millennials and Gen Z around the world listening to us uh, as and when it'll be published about truly acting on inclusion as an operating principle? I heard you once talk about now entrepreneurs have a little bit of leverage in terms of negotiating with uh, VCs in terms of their uh, inclusion and diversity principles. What's your parting message to the millennials and Gen Zs listening to us? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times I think of one of my biggest pieces of, you know, advice is always, you know, when you were talking about in the beginning, you can't be what you can't see, like always make sure that you're reaching back and giving somebody else the opportunity you've been given. I think if everyone had that mindset, we would just see much greater levels of diversity and inclusion and see people, you know, coming up the ranks. I try and think of it as you don't, you know, start giving back when you make it, you give back as you make it. And so I think that that's something I always try and think about. I do tons of mentoring calls. I try and, you know, the minute I come into an organization, I don't go, oh, I'm, I haven't been here long enough. I can't ask them to do something related to, you know, D&I or access. Like I ask for it, for it from day one, because I think that it doesn't matter if I joined the organization one week ago, I don't need to earn credibility to do that. So I think that's a really important mindset to keep in mind. And, you know, that would be one of my parting messages. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Mercedes. Keep writing and uh, keep investing in companies that really move the needle. It was, uh, it was such a delight hosting you on Network Capital as a believer in the ed tech revolution going on. Um, we learned a lot from your engagement and now it'll go out to 100,000 plus people. Hopefully they'll be as inspired as I was listening to you. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.